Good morning and uh, Happy New Year. I can tell that uh, many of you are probably surprised, maybe disappointed that uh, you're having to deal with second team today. But uh, let me just say that the feeling is mutual because... Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, Debbie, because I've been nervous about this, it's not that I... It's not that I don't speak in front of people. It's just that I take this so seriously. And uh, she said, well, don't worry about it. There won't be anybody there. <laughs> we got this big crowd, you know. We got guests in from Texas. And, uh, so we're, but we're going to push through. And uh, I am excited to be here to talk about this great hymn to Christ and uh, you know, recently as a congregation, we've been looking at the four great Christological hymns to Jesus Christ. And by those, what does that mean? A Christological hymn is a hymn about Christ. Uh, a hymn meaning a song that teaches doctrine. And these hymns, these four great passages in John chapter 1, in Philippians chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter 1, and now in Colossians chapter 1, these four great passages probably teach more doctrine. They have more teaching about the person of Jesus Christ than any other passages in Scripture. From these four passages alone, you can probably learn more than anywhere else you could go to in all the Bible. Of course, Carlton has taught. Uh, he's preached on John chapter 1. He taught one Sunday morning, 9 o'clock hour, on Philippians chapter 2. And I taught last time we were here on Hebrews chapter 1. So we're left with Colossians chapter 1, and the focal point of that hymn is 15 through 20, verses 15 through 20. So join me in prayer as we uh, prepare to get into this great hymn. Holy Father, we do come before you with fear and trembling, knowing that you are God, and that you are the Creator God. And Lord, that you rule and reign over all things, and I pray especially now, Lord, for my humble attempts, my feeble efforts at conveying Your Almighty Word. Lord, I pray that You would remove distractions from my mind, that You would help me to be clear, that You would help me to communicate Your truth correctly, that You would guard me from error. And Lord, I pray for those who hear that Your Spirit would work to illuminate Your Word in their minds and in their lives, that in spite of me, they might hear you, that they would see your truth, they would receive it, they would believe it, and they would live it. Lord, above all, in this passage especially, we pray that Christ is exalted, that Christ as God the Son is seen in His full glory, and that we might worship Him as we go through your word Give us a heart of worship toward Him. Give us a mind of awe and interest toward who He really is. And that we see Him in His full glory, in His preeminence over all things. Lord, I thank You for such powerful words and pray that they would speak clearly now to us. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So, we have this great passage in Colossians before us. And um, Carlton read it to you earlier. But um, 
I just want to talk a little bit about the situation that we're getting into here with Colossians chapter 1. You know, the background for the letter that Paul wrote to the little church at Colossae, and by the way, that was a little area in what is now western Turkey. Um, the background on that letter may help us to understand that this is more applicable to us today than we may realize. Of course, we know all Scripture is applicable to all men for all times. But we know that they were written prime, originally with a specific audience. And then, of course, since God inspired them, they have the audience of all mankind. Well, that little church had a lot of things strikingly similar to what we see in the world today. As I mentioned this morning in the 9 o'clock hour next Sunday, and I encourage all of you to be with us, we begin a study on the book of Genesis in the 9 o'clock Bible study time. <clears throat> and, you know, as we start this book of origins or beginnings in uh, the study of Genesis, I think we all, as we discussed this morning, we all would acknowledge that ours today is an age of science. Do you know that over 95% of all the scientists who've ever lived are alive today. Every day, every day, and think about how the Internet has exploded this even beyond this statistic I'm about to tell you is probably incorrect. But every day, millions of pages of data are added to our knowledge base. So we have an exploding knowledge base and an age of science. And with such knowledge, people, as I said this morning, are educated to the point that they become fools and so that we even question our origins. And so if origins are questioned, then purpose and destiny become questioned, right? Without origin, without knowledge of why we're here, where'd we come from, then we naturally question what's our purpose and what's our destiny. <clears throat> and so many people wonder, is there really a God? Is He really the source and creator of all things? Was he part of the original creation or was he the source of it? That was the case at Colossae also. Colossae had the same situation. But ours is also an age of religion, isn't it? We see in the world today, religion is rampant. Never before, especially in this country, has religion been so much at the forefront of everybody's thought. Everybody is interested in religion. And it seems that people study religions like they study a smorgasbord in a cafeteria. You know, like, I want to look at this and that and pick which one I like best, which one suits my personality, suits my lifestyle best. Well, remember, religion is a man-made attempt to reach God or some enlightenment goal. It's man-made. And such was the case at Colossae. And when you have man-made attempts through religion to reach God or some goal, then they usually vary between two extremes. One extreme is severe, legalistic, uh, strict approach. The other extreme is a general, loose, anything-goes, libertarian approach, like a philosophical approach. Such was the case at Colossae. At Colossae, you had a struggle between the Judaizers, which said you must add the strict law of Judaism to Christianity and you had the struggle with the uh, original Greek thought in the area, the Greek philosophies of Gnosticism and other asceticisms and other cultures that uh, were at struggle there. 
So, Paul, in writing this letter to the church at Colossae, begins in chapter 1, verse 1, he goes through some personal greetings, he gives uh, thanksgiving, and then even a prayer, beginning in verse 9, he has a prayer for the Colossians. It's a wonderful prayer, down through verse 14. But now look at verse 15. There's a huge shift. It's almost shocking. After a personal introduction, we come to a deep, rich section of doctrine. Doctrine meaning just teaching. And teaching, in this case, about God the Son, Jesus Christ. So let's read through it again. Verse 15, Colossians chapter 1. And He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So we'll stop there, but think about as we get into this, and by the way, I hope everyone got a sheet since we don't have an overhead. If, if you didn't, I don't, did we have any left window? They're all gone. Well, if anybody needs one, we can run one off, I guess. Or, uh, but if follow along with me on your outline just to help us stay on track here. Um, this is a hymn to Christ. It's a hymn of His preeminence. And these were probably recited or sung in the early church, all four of these hymns. But just think about a minute before we get into it. Who is Jesus? I want to present to you today, and I hope you see this in God's Word, that whatever the question is, Jesus is the answer. Whatever the issue is, Jesus is the point. Whatever the problem is, Jesus is the solution. That's what I think we see in all these four great hymns, and especially the one we look at today. And while we go through this deep, rich doctrine in verses 15 to 20, we're flattened by the power and by the truth and by the authority. But, I hope that before we leave, we also see that we're encouraged in this passage. We're encouraged and enlightened by the hope that remains for us that this same Jesus, who is God, is our hope. He's our joy. He's our greatest treasure. So, as we go through it, I hope we see Jesus in four perspectives. In His relation to, first, the Creator the creation, the church, and the conciliation. And I know you may think I made up that word, but we'll talk about that when we get to it. So first of all, in verse 15, Christ as the Creator. 
So immediately in verse 15, the person of Christ is identified with God. So we're immediately struck with the question of who is God? And even beyond that, who is Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ God? And that's the question that all men face for all eternity. That is the question that divides all mankind. Who is Jesus Christ? And is He God? He either is who He claimed to be, or He's a liar or a lunatic. He can't be a good man. He can't be a good prophet. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or He is Lord. That's the only choice. And so that's what we're faced with. Is Jesus Christ God or not? And remember, we're trying to comprehend the incomprehensible. God, the Creator, is trying to reveal Himself to the creation. God, the unlimited, is trying to reveal Himself to the limited. God, the unseen, is trying to reveal Himself to, the, to those of us who only have our senses. We only deal in a physical realm. We only receive data through our physical senses. senses. So, how can He do it? Well, of course, that's the story of Christmas. And by the way, if you wonder what the title of this attempt at a message may be, you see on your handout I put Christ the preeminent or the child who was God. Uh, See, I couldn't even decide on the titles. I've got three. But Christ the preeminent or the child who was God. And reflecting back on the week we just came out of in Christmas, see, we celebrate the advent. That's the first coming of God in the flesh. That's God in the flesh came to earth as Jesus Christ. So what kind of person would we expect God to be? What would we expect of God, this God who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, as verse 15 says? What are the divine attributes of God? What is the essence of God? Like, if you had an encounter with God, what would you expect? Like, what what kind of expectations would you have from an encounter with God? Well, think about in Genesis 18, Abraham did. And Abraham said that I am but dust and ashes, and yet I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Moses prayed that God would show him his glory. But God told him, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And then Isaiah in chapter 6 said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. But my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So God cannot be perceived with the physical senses. So God had to explain Himself. And how did He explain Himself? Well, He sent an explanation. He explained Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the story of Christmas. In, in John chapter 1, what does it say about Jesus? It says, No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And that word is, is exegete. It means to explain in detail, to reveal in personal detail. And that explanation was so clear to John that when John the Apostle saw Jesus, In the Revelation, in chapter 1, what did he do? He fell at his feet as a dead man. He had the same reaction that Abraham, Moses, and Isaiah had. He fell at his feet as a dead man. 
because he knew he wasn't just before his buddy that he'd spent three years with. He was before God Almighty in human flesh. So he trembled and fell at his feet. Well, but look at the, uh, look at the word used to convey the image of God in verse 15. He says, he is the image. The root word there is what we get the word icon from. And it means portrait, picture, illustration. It is a representation of who God is. And this ties back in into the three, what are the three ways we see God being explained in these great hymns? We see God as an image or a likeness here. We see God as a representation in Hebrews 1. It says the representation of His nature, the exact representation of His nature. And then we see God as a manifestation or as an explanation in John chapter 1 where Christ explains God. So all three concepts are parallel to what we see here in verse 15. Jesus Christ is presenting God to us in human flesh in a way in which we can understand it. The incomprehensible in comprehension. The unlimited, limited in human flesh. The eternal put in finite dimension and finite flesh. Unbelievable. So, how, how effective is this? How effective is God's revelation through Jesus Christ? Well, it was so powerful that what did Jesus say just before His crucifixion at the uh, last time He spent with His disciples? He told them what? That when Philip asked Him, show us the Father, He said to Philip, have I been with you so long? And yet you asked that question? Because He said, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. How do you say, show Me the Father? He who has seen Me has seen the Father, the invisible God. If you see Jesus Christ, you see God. So, how can we know more about who God is? How can we know more if that's the quest we're all on? We want to know God. We want to know more about God. We want to have a more intimate relationship with God. So how can we? Can we look to our own thinking? Can we look to what other people say, their opinions? Or they may say, well, I think God would be this way. Should we look to that or should we look to God Himself? If God Himself has come in the person of Jesus Christ, who else should we look to? It's His greatest revelation. And it's not just any Christ, but it's the Christ of the Word. It's the Christ of Holy Scripture. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is Jesus Christ in His full glory. But... Notice it also says he's not just the image of the invisible God, but he also uses a very unique phrase, the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. This has reference to Jesus' position in, his, in relation to his priority or preeminence, his position or rank, and his power or authority. So if you following along in your handout is priority, position, or power. And that power authority is over all creation. So, unlike uh, many may think, this does not refer to time. 
So in reference to Jesus, this firstborn term is used throughout Scripture in many different ways. We don't have time to look to all of them, but just take my word here, and you can look up the Scriptures later. Relative to all creation. He's the firstborn of all creation. It is used in a, in a way in the uh, Christmas story. Y'all may have that on your mind, that Mary gave birth to her what? Firstborn. But that means firstborn physically. That's not the way it's used in these spiritual terms about Jesus as God. So in Colossians 1.15, here it's talking about His firstborn rank over all creation. Relative to the church, in Romans 8.29, it says He's the firstborn among many brethren. Relative to the resurrection and over the resurrection, in Colossians 1.18, it says He's the firstborn from the dead. We just read that. And then in Revelation 5, the same one five, it says the same thing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says He's the firstfruits of those who sleep. And then lastly, in, rel- in relation to the second coming, in Hebrews 1.6, it says, And when He again brings the firstborn into the world. So Jesus is the firstborn. The word is prototokos. It's, it means firstborn in power, position, and priority. Not in time. Now, there are some denominations that insert six times. Um, let me just say it's in the New World Translation. Y'all can figure out which denomination that is. Six times they add the word other to this translation. So that they're trying to support their position that Jesus was the one created and that then he created other things so that he is the firstborn physically part of creation. But of course that interpretation is impossible. Uh, that's not the subject here and he obviously is not the firstborn in time because many others preceded him uh, as we know though the whole Old Testament proves that Jesus is not a created creature he is creator God so enough said about that verse 16 we see Christ in relation to the creation itself what does it say here it says, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So, what is another way that Jesus has the preeminence, as two translations use in uh, uh, verse 18? Or, as the NASB says, the first place in everything. How is he preeminent over creation? Well, first of all, he ranks above it as creator. Right? Jesus ranks above all creation as its creator. He existed before it as eternal God. And he holds it together as God the sustainer. So, again, to follow along in the handout, you see in verse 16 that He created all things. God, the Son, in the person of Jesus Christ, created all things. By Him, all things were created. Verse 17, He is before all things. That's clearly there in the verse. It says, He is before all things. And then thirdly, He holds all things together. And again in verse 17, In Him all things hold together. So, and Paul is really 
using a Greek rationale. He's, he's dealing in part with a Greek culture and a Greek philosophy, as I said earlier. So he's using uh, an argument that really talks about uh, causes and a causative argument position. And not to get in a lot of detail, but the subject here is all things. In the sentence, the subject is all things. The verb is were created. And that, that means it's an act. The root verb means it's an action that occurred at a point of time in the past and that the subject is, it occurred to the subject, all things. That's why it's a passive verb. So what are these causative arguments? They're based on three prepositional phrases. See, by him, that's the means. How were things created? By him. For him, that's the goal. It was, they were created for him. In Him, that's in verse 17. In Him, that's the sustainment. So you, you see, by Him, the means of creation. For Him, the goal of creation. In Him, the sustaining of creation. What's missing? In Greek thought, there was the primary cause. That was what was the source. Well, we can go to Romans eleven thirty six, and it's there, Right? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. So He's not only the means, the goal, the sustaining element of creation. He's also its source. From Him all things were created. Unlike what we hear in the world today, nobody times nothing does not equal everything. God created from nothing. From nothing, God made all that there is. And this in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we see the power of the Trinity working in creation, don't we? Throughout Genesis and throughout Scripture, the Father plans it, the Spirit powers it, and the Son provides it. The Father plans it, the Spirit empowers it, and the Son provides creation. And just as an aside, don't have time to drift too much here, but think about Salvation, the recreation. How does that apply to salvation? The Father plans it, the Spirit empowers it, and the Son provides it. Right? Okay. What's the division of creation? Look, look how creation is divided up, both in the heavens and on earth. Now, heaven in the Bible can have three meanings. There can be the heaven, the atmosphere, that we would call atmosphere. That's the sky. Then there can be the heavens, which is outer space, what we would call space. And then there are the heavens, which mean the spiritual realm, the unseen heavens beyond the heavens. All three meanings are in Scripture. So here, obviously, it's referring to the spiritual realm. So we have the visible creation, which is on earth. We have, and that's the material or the physical creation. And then we have the invisible creation, the immaterial world, which is the spiritual world. So this division right here covers the entire creation, both seen and unseen. So think about what a view it is of Jesus Christ. This is the creator of all that there is. He spoke all things into existence. 
everything. All we see, all we don't see. And just think about, I wish we had more time to just ponder the magnificence of God's creation in what we see. I mean, it's beyond comprehension. And all of you have experienced this before, I'm sure, in nature, out in the world, you experience the overwhelming awe of what God's done in this world. But just think about what we're beginning to see in the astronomical world. You know, the earth is about 8,000 miles in diameter. It's big. That's real big to me. I can't comprehend that. But the sun is like over 100 times that, 869,000 miles in diameter. In fact, the sun is so large that 1.3 million earths will fit into it and still have room in the gaps for 4.2 million moons. So 1.3 million earths and 4.3 million moons will fit inside the sun. Yet, the sun is just an average star. It's just medium size. Betelgeuse and Antares are red giants that are 900 times bigger than the sun. 900 times bigger than the sun. So, and we've got 10 to the... Tr- 10 to the 25 power number of galaxies with billions of stars in each galaxy. There there are as many galaxies, we think, as there are grains of sand on the seashores of all the earth. That blows your mind. Think about all the diversity of life on earth. There's all these tremendous cells in our body. You know, we've got uh, unbelievable... Uh, what is it, 10 to the 14? Yeah, 10 to the 14 power of cells in our human body. That is 100 trillion cells. What complexity there is in life. Well, where did all this come from? Well, you see, there was once nothing, and then all of a sudden these elements came together and there was this big bang. Stupid, right? Or, well, and then on earth there was this puddle of protoplasm and the right combination of elements and energy all came together and life started and then all of a sudden you got men walking around. Well, see, professing to be wise, we've become fools. God created. But even beyond that, I want you to consider the invisible creation. I think we know God is what? Spirit. God is spirit. So my theory is that the spiritual realm is even beyond the physical realm. As magnificent as the physical realm is, and think about that beyond planet Earth, the wonders out there we can't even comprehend. As magnificent and limitless as that is, think about what the spiritual realm may be. God made all that. You know, in the Scriptures, Nehemiah 6, 9, 6 says... Thou alone art the Lord. Thou hast made the heavens. The heaven of heavens. That's the heaven of heavens with all their host. That's angelic beings. The earth and all that is on it. The seas and all that is in them. Thou dost give life to all of them. And the heavenly host bows down before thee. So the spiritual world includes the cherubim of Genesis 3, Ezekiel 10. The seraphim of Isaiah 6 the four living beings in Ezekiel 1 and Revelation 4, and the angels, 
the angels, the elect angels and the fallen angels of many, many orders and ranks. You know, in Daniel chapter 10, there's a passage there where Daniel is praying. And it, it gives us insight by, uh, by reference, by inference. We see insight into the complex ranking of these angelic powers. And in fact, in this passage, what does it say? Visible and invisible, verse 16, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. That's specifically referring to the invisible or spiritual creation. So there in Daniel 10, we see the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me. This is Michael. Uh, and the angel was coming to assist Daniel but for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, that's the archangel Michael, came to help me. Then in verse 20, it talks about the prince of Persia as another demon. You know, demons are just fallen angels. So we see the prince of Persia, the prince of Greece is about to come. So you see ranks and dominions here in the spiritual realm that I think are beyond our understanding. Thrones in verse 16 of Colossians refers to a stately seat. Dominions refer to lordships. Rulers refer to authorities or principalities. And authorities are powers of choice. So, how amazing is the spiritual realm? I have no clue. But all I know is, whatever's there, God spoke and it appeared. Whatever's there, God the Son, Jesus Christ, created it all. So, remember, why does Jesus have priority or first place over all creation? Why is He the firstborn in heir and authority over all creation? Because of the threefold declaration of creation about Him. He created all things. He is before all things. He holds all things together. By the way, on that last point, again, we could get into this, but isn't it amazing to think about that God, through Jesus, not only spoke and worlds appeared, but He holds everything together. As we've talked about before, it's not natural for the atomic world to exist. You've got negative particles in atoms with positive particles that should blow themselves apart. And scientists, they theorize ad infinitum on what is this glue that holds everything we know together. Well, here it is. He holds all things together. In Him, all things hold together. And in Hebrews, it says the same thing. He holds all things together by the word of His power. And one day, He may say, let go. And we may be in the Second Peter chapter 3 situation where the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up because we'll have the biggest nuclear reaction you've ever seen when all things let go. So, therefore, we see God as the creator, the eternal proceder, and the sustainer of all things. And now back to what I said earlier about seeing this in relation to salvation. When we present the gospel, I think it's so important that we start with God as creator. We see God as God. You know, there's so much evangelical gospel presentation going on today where Jesus is presented as our buddy. You know, like, have you got trouble with your money? 
Come to Jesus. He'll fix it. You got health problems? Come to Jesus. He'll fix it. You got marriage problems? Come to Jesus. He'll fix it. Whatever your problem is in this life, come to Jesus. He'll fix it. And he'll be your friend who, who sticks closer than a brother. Well, there is a friendship with Christ. But we need to see in these great hymns that Christ is God. Christ is God. And we need to start when we present the message of the gospel with a God-centered view of it. That the primary attribute of God is not just love, but God is holiness. God is majesty. God is creator. God is judge. God as redeemer. God is love, but God is many other things too. And so we have to see ourselves as being created. And so since we are created, the one who created us has dominion and authority over us. And we come to Him because He commands us to come to Him. When Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand, and He came out and started His message, He said, the gospel of God is being declared everywhere. Repent and believe it. That's Mark chapter 1. He says, repent and believe. Commands. He didn't say, please come. As Creator, with authority over all He's made, God, through the person of Jesus Christ, commands, come. Commands, repent. Commands, believe. Trust in me and be saved. And I think that's where we need to begin with all gospel presentations. But that brings us to Christ in relation to the church. Verse 18, He is also head of the body, the church. And He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. What do we see here? There's three nouns, just quickly, that describe His relationship to the church. He is the head of the body, the church. Well, they, uh, their meanings are going from the most specific to the most broad or general terms. So let's take them in reverse order. The broadest category, the last noun used, is the church. And we know that root word means the called out. Never in Scripture does it refer to a gathering of unbelievers. It always refers to the true church who may be among a gathering of unbelievers. It's the called out ones, a specific group of people that God has called out to redeem for His own purpose. The church is also presented in other ways in the Scripture. We see all kinds of illustrations and terms like a building, a kingdom, a temple, a vineyard, a flock, a family, a bride. And Christ is presented as its cornerstone, king, high priest, chief shepherd, firstborn, heir, and husband. But look at the second noun in reverse order that's used, and that's the body. There's no parallel to this in the Old Testament. Paul, over and over, in 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians, in Romans, and here in Colossians presents the church as a body. So the church is portrayed as a body, a living, growing organism, not an organization. I know this seems so simple, but if we just think about that for a minute, the church is not an organization. We shouldn't run it like an organization. We shouldn't treat it like an organization. We shouldn't think of it like an organization. It's an organism. It's a living, growing organism. A body. And 
Lastly, notice Christ is presented as its head. Um, that means the top or that which is uppermost in relation to something. And that denotes control and authority. Consider the role of your own head in relation to your own physical body. What does it do? It provides growth and life. You know, the uh, uh, endocrine system, things I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. But all these substances and hormones that come from your head to make your body function and grow. And if they get out of balance, you've got big trouble. So the head provides growth and life. It provides guidance and thoughts, at least in some. With some of us, it's questionable that, that there's guidance and thoughts about as it relates to our body. And that really relates to our soul too, doesn't it? So we have growth in life relative to the body, guidance and thoughts relative to the soul. And then it also provides control and power. And for us as believers, that relates to our spirit. So how should the church receive its growth and life? How should the church receive its guidance and thinking? Or how should the church be controlled by the head, Jesus Christ, who is before all things? Now secondly, in addition to his relationship to the church, we see he's called the beginning. It means the origin. He is the active and primary cause, as we said before. And thirdly, we see this wonderful phrase here where he says that he is the firstborn from the dead. As I mentioned earlier, that indicates his authority over resurrection, his authority over death itself, that in the resurrection he has the first place. He is the firstborn of all the resurrected who will follow after him and including us. And then we see the summary statement that sums it all up at the end of verse 18. So that, that means here comes the purpose, so that, these, this is a purpose clause, he himself might come to have first place or the preeminence in everything. So Christ is over all things. He's before all things. He rules over all things. He's the source of all things. He created all things. He sustains all things. Christ is Lord. Christ is God. But here comes the hope. What is the hope that we have? If we see this great paean of praise about Jesus as God, it's worshipful, and we should worship Him in that. But what about we are selfish. We do want to see what's the benefit for us. Well, verses 19 and 20 bring us hope and encouragement because here we see Christ in relation to the conciliation. And conciliation is spelled just like reconciliation without the R-E in front. What does reconciliation mean? It means being reconciliated. Conciliation means bringing back into harmony. It means bringing into harmony originally. Bringing into harmony, goodwill, fellowship. Well, redemption is often referred to as reconciliation. And I'm not here to say that's wrong because we are being restored to the state we had before the fall. Right? But how is this conciliation really different? Because what? This is permanent. It doesn't depend on us. The state before the fall depended on us. We had to obey. We had to remain sinless. But now it doesn't depend on us. It depends on God who has saved us. So we see here that God in Jesus Christ 
is head even of the story of conciliation. That is the story of salvation. And we see this in many different terms and ways. You know, we talk about justification, redemption, forgiveness, adoption, expiation, propitiation, and here, conciliation or reconciliation. Interesting word here used. Normally in the Bible, the word used for conciliation doesn't have this prefix. And in, in here, only in Colossians, in verses 20 and 21, and Ephesians 2, Paul uses a prefix, A-P-O, in front of this word that intensifies the meaning of the root word to make it complete reconciliation. It's like complete knowledge. When the little root APO is put in front of the word for knowledge, it means complete or full knowledge. This prefix APO is put in front of conciliation. It means complete or full reconciliation. What's in need of reconciliation? All things. Why is it in need of all of reconciliation? Because sin has affected all things. And so what things, by the way, what things are excluded here? This is kind of interesting. Um, do you see how that it says here what? Through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. From scripture, what phrase is missing? Things on earth, Philippians 2. Things on earth, things under the earth. Things in the heavens. Why is it left out? They're not reconciled. Things under the earth, in hell, they're not reconciled. So there's no hope for the cast demons, the cast out demons and those who are lost. Because So it just shows the perfection of Scripture that he says on earth and things in heaven and he leaves out things under the earth. Although all things will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether on earth or under the earth or in heaven. So, and what was the means by which this peace or reconciliation was made? He made peace through what? The blood of His cross. The blood of His cross. The cross of Jesus is the focal point of our redemption. And it's the focal point of the redemption of all creation. Romans 8 says all creation groans and moans waiting its redemption. And praise be to God, through the reconciliation of Jesus Christ, it will one day see it. We will all one day be redeemed. Us and all of creation will one day be redeemed due to the finished work of Jesus Christ. So what a statement. What a statement about the glory of Jesus here in 15 through 20. But look how he transitions. He goes on, verse 22, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Do you see how the doctrine and the teaching is beginning to shift from who is Jesus, who is God manifest in the flesh, to what does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? Well, the hope of the gospel and the hope of glory is powerfully presented. It's all summed up when we move down. Just skip all the way down to verse 27. Verse 26, back at one verse, says, 
This is the mystery. The mystery that's been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints, the called out ones, the church. Verse 27, To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Such a powerful statement. It flattens me to think of this concept. When you think of who, who God is, who is Jesus Christ, and yet that same God is Christ in you. Christ in me. This should be the ultimate encouragement. This should be the ultimate hope. If we want hope for 2006, if we want 2006 to be a year that is special, we should focus on what is our ultimate hope? What is our ultimate joy? What is our ultimate treasure? Christ in you. I mean, think about how we're in Christ. In the Scriptures many times, Second Corinthians talks about being in Christ. We're a new creation. In Ephesians chapter 1, there are ten places in chapter 1 of Ephesians alone where it talks about in Him, in Christ, over and over and over. It's the realization of the new covenant that was once promised. In Jeremiah 31, God says, This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. So God comes into us. So we have Christ in us. Think about what are some of the things we receive when we're saved. And I'm wrapping up here now. I want y'all to get this. This is, this is life application for this. What are the implications of us being saved? We gain many things in salvation. And they're all beyond measure in the world in their value. We could talk about redemption. We're reconciled. We gain freedom. Freedom from the law and freedom to righteousness. We're regenerated. We're made alive to the Spirit. We're adopted as joint heirs with Christ into the family of God. We're justified. We're declared to be righteous. We're sanctified. We're made holy and set apart. We're forgiven. All of our sins are forgiven. We're delivered from our bodies of death and from the world system and from the power of Satan. We're, in part, we're in, placed into a royal priesthood for God. We have direct access to God. We have all the riches of Christ. We have all the gifts of the Spirit in varying degrees, one or more gifts. We have all the spiritual blessings that He desires us to have. We're seated in the heavenlies with Jesus Christ. We have all discernment by the power of the Spirit. We're made complete in Christ, lacking nothing. We're glorified with Him. Even now, God sees us as glorified in the heavens. We have eternal life now. We have eternal life now. We have a dwelling place that God is preparing before us. We have the blessings of heaven. We have all the crowns and rewards. We have all those things. But that's not the greatest treasure. Um, I apologize for that. But the greatest treasure, as John Piper says in his new book, God is the gospel. The greatest treasure is that God gives us Himself. 
We have all those things. We couldn't put a value on any of them. But we have God. God revealed Himself in Jesus Christ and He gave us Himself in Jesus Christ. That's beyond my understanding. That this same God who said, let there be, and Betelgeuse, 900 900 times the size of the sun, whose orbit would go past Earth's, I mean the diameter would go past the orbit of Earth, that and billions more just like it appeared. This God who said, let there be, and man rose up out of dust and became a living being and God breathed into him the breath of life, that same God is in me. That same God is in you. And we're in Him too. God is in us and we're in Him. It's an amazing mystery. But what gives value to any gift? What gives value to any gift? It's the love of the one who gives it, the ability to give of the one who gives it, the nature and the value of the giver to you, and the relative value of the gift. How many times do you stick little cartoon things on the refrigerator door with a magnet and you treasure those beyond a painting you might get in a museum? Why? It's because who did it? Who made that? The value comes from its giver and the love that giver has for you. So how valuable, what would be the greatest valuable gift God could give you? He has no greater thing than Himself. And Jesus Christ, as John said, is the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. As the writer of Hebrews said, Jesus Christ is the radiance of His glory. And as Paul said in his letter to Corinth, God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Beyond comprehension. And just to wrap it up, if you want to see how this... Do you see the conflict? Those of you who know me know I'm real focused on truths and tension. The Scripture is always full of truths and tension. You know, like one of the great ones is, God is sovereign, but we're responsible. They seem at conflict, but they're not. Those are tensions like railroad tracks. They never contradict each other. God is totally sovereign, yet we're totally responsible for our choices. Likewise, we see this great truth intention of God the Almighty, God the unfathomable, God the incomprehensible, the incomparable and incomprehensible. But He is in you. Look at the second chapter of Colossians. We'll close with these two verses. The tension is side by side. We just saw it in verse in chapter 1. We had that great hymn to Christ, 15 through 20. And then the promise of the hope of glory in verse 27. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 9. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him, you have been made complete. In Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's the message. 
In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is God in the flesh. And yet, unbelievably, in him, you have been made complete. I don't know what else I could add to that except to say praise God and praise be to God for the person of Jesus Christ who loved us with such a great love that He would give Himself for us. Who loved us with such a great love that although He loved the Father more and He came to fulfill the desire of the Father, He came in His first coming to save sinners. It says... He came to save sinners, of which we are all part. So, as we focus on the year to come, let's not forget who gives us everything, who is the ruler, creator, sustainer of all things, and who will one day be our glorifier that will bring us into full revelation of His glory, and that's Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, we praise You and thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray that we see Your truth and that we not just see it, but we believe it and we respond to it and it would change us. It would transform us.